and welcome to the Denton's Real Estate Litigation Podcast. Today we're going to focus on the government's private rented sector, White Paper. This is a radical and revolutionary document that sets out the government's commitment to robust and comprehensive changes to create a private rented sector that meets the needs of the diverse tenants and landlords who live and work within it. That's according to the government. Of key interest, and indeed recent favoured speculation, is the government's commitment to banning no-fault evictions an end to Section 21 notices. Asked Prime Minister's questions on the 12th of October if she could reassure private renters that the proposed ban would go ahead, Liz Truss responded, I can. However, this is just one point of a 12-point plan of action that the White Paper seeks to introduce. The White Paper tackles accommodation standards, enforcement and rent increase controls. It seeks to establish administrative procedures, an ombudsman scheme and deposit passporting. It even wants to prevent landlords from banning tenants from having pets. Good news for pandemic dog owners everywhere. Guiding us through the white paper and its potential impact on the sector is our very special guest, Philip Rainey, King's Counsel. Philip is head of chambers at Tanfield Chambers, but more importantly, is a go-to silk for all things property related and especially residential property, layering expertise on expertise. Philip has been to the House of Lords and Supreme Court on six occasions and has featured in a multitude of leading property cases at all judicial levels. Philip is a no-nonsense litigator with a formidable reputation for logic, reason and persuasive argument. As Chambers has put it, Philip is a supremely confident, smooth, incredible advocate and is cool, calm and collected and able to adeptly think in his feet in the face of extremely complicated and unique points of law. Who better then than to add colour to the white paper and bring it to life, Philip Rainey. Asking Philip the key questions today will be our very own Thomas Nolan. Thomas is a first-rate solicitor with deep knowledge, experience and mastery of all of the knotty areas of residential law. Thomas, over to you. Thanks very much, Brighton. So I guess, Philip, where to start? Can you give us a brief overview of what the purpose of the white paper is? Yes. There are a number of perceived problems with the current system of private renting, which is established by the Housing Act 1988. The first is the perceived lack of security of tenure for tenants, which means that they may have to move frequently, which is a problem for laying down routes. It's a problem uh, if children have to move schools, and it's perceived to be a, a significant unfairness on private renters. A further problem is that it's thought that a lot of the terms which are imposed on private renters by their landlords are unduly restrictive. Brian's mentioned the pets, the no pets rule, which is quite common. But there are also other restrictions which are addressed by the white paper. For example, landlords who have a blanket rule, for example, no DSS tenants. There's also um, a problem with a minority of rented properties that are thought not to be of an acceptable standard. And although it is uh, only a minority of rented properties, uh, there are so many rented properties that a minority is still hundreds of thousands of properties. So I think those are the main targets of the proposed bill. So just touching on that last point about the standard of property. So the paper introduces a decent home standard. So what is it? Well, the decent home standard is actually well known already in the public sector. Um, It applies to local authority properties. And in the local authority sector, there are unfortunately a lot of substandard properties, a lot of 1960s built properties which are cold, damp, 
you know, prone to cold bridging, condensation, mold, uh, windows which don't fit particularly well, that kind of problem. And so essentially what is proposed is to apply the decent home standard into the private sector. Now, a lot of what is covered would be covered by existing legislation and existing obligations. So, for example, there are already covenants imposed on landlords for repair uh, under Section 11 of the Landlord and Tenant Act uh, of 1985. Uh, properties already have to be fit for habitation. There are already specific regulations concerning fire safety and gas safety. But um, the idea of applying the decent home standard is to, I think, clear away a lot of the technicalities of it. So, for example, you can have arguments as to whether if a house has condensation or mould, is that disrepair or is it, for example, a design defect which would not be repair? Those kinds of technicalities will be removed by applying a decent home standard. Uh, the decent home standard also goes further. For example, uh, specific examples in the white paper are uh, that kitchens and bathrooms would need to be appropriately located which obviously is not a repairing point, they would need to be adequate. And it's suggested that they must not be too old. So it simply won't be possible to say, well, the, the bathroom is 100 years old, but it's still in fine repair. Thank you very much. It's also proposed to introduce standards for noise insulation. And in a lot of rented flats, uh, the transmission of noise from one flat to another can be a real problem. And the decent home standard will uh, impose minimum standards for noise insulation, which landlords will have to comply with. The way these will be enforced is by a, an overall legislative duty on landlords to comply. That means that it won't simply be up to the renter to bring proceedings if they can afford to do so and if they can find a solicitor to help them. Councils will be able to enforce directly against landlords. And it's also proposed to introduce rent repayment orders in the cases of non-decent homes so this is an idea which is borrowed from the licensing of houses in multiple occupation. So although, as I said at the beginning, a lot of this is covered by existing legislation, the way it would work would actually be quite different. If you're one of those minority of landlords who has a home which isn't of a decent standard, because plainly most rented properties happily will actually be of a decent standard uh, and hopefully responsible landlords don't actually have anything to worry about from this. Yeah, I think I think that's the point that actually the decent home standard shouldn't be a worry to many landlords because hopefully their um, properties are to that standard already. Hopefully. I think that's that's right. Um, the spread of properties which are not of a decent standard is is not uniform. It won't be a surprise to find that the majority of homes which are not of a decent standard are at the bottom of the rental market and they are disproportionately concentrated in the hands of renters who are on DSS benefits. So what, one of the things which the government is concerned about is that a very significant proportion uh, of the benefits which are paid to landlords are actually paid for the minority of homes which are not of a decent standard. So the, the way the government sees it is they are actually subsidising substandard accommodation and subsidising substandard landlords. And so those landlords will, I think, have a wake-up call as a result of this. So 
Looking at it from the landlord's perspective, and at the minute there is the regime where there's a non-fault process if they wanted to re, you know, regain possession of their property when, when the fixed term comes to an end. Is that going to remain? No, this is one of the key proposals, and, and it is the proposal which was specifically mentioned at Prime Minister's Questions the day before this podcast was made. Um, if you're listening to it in six months' time, it was six months ago. But this is the uh, this is the specific question which was put to the Prime Minister, to which she said, I can promise that this will be introduced. But uh, if you drill down to it, it's actually a much more significant change because what is proposed is that the current system where there are usually fixed-term tenancies of six months or 12 months is going to be abolished. And it specifically says that all short-term rented tenancies in England will become periodic tenancies, because it's not just an intention to remove the landlord's right of no-fault eviction. It's also intended to give tenants flexibility so that if their circumstances change, they can leave when they like on two months' notice. So it will completely change the, the balance in the system. The tenant will always be able to give notice, minimum two months to leave, but the landlord will never be able to give notice on a no-fault basis, the equivalent of Section 21. Landlords will only be able to obtain possession in a set of reasonable circumstances. So what are those reasonable circumstances? So is a landlord going to be stuck with an unscrupulous tenant or a non-performing tenant? Well, it depends how you look at it, because I think one of the potential problems with the research which underpins the bill is that it's assumed that all Section 21 no-fault evictions are actually no-fault. And the reality is that because of the problems in the court system with obtaining eviction on a fault basis, a lot of landlords faced with a problem tenant will, in effect, suck it up for a while. They'll serve a Section 21 notice, and they'll choose to evict the tenant on the no-fault ground because the tenant hasn't got an argument in response. So... Within that, there's a disguised set of fault possessions, which will presumably increase hugely the number of fault-based eviction proceedings under the new system. There will still be absolute rights to possession. Two examples which will benefit buy-to-let landlords in particular are, first of all, there will be an absolute right to possession in order to sell the property, although that can't be exercised in the first six months of the tenancy. And secondly, there will be an absolute right to possession if it is a property which was the landlord's property and they need to move back in or their family needs to move back in. So that will be an absolute right. There will still be an absolute mandatory ground for possession if the tenant is in substantial arrears of rent, the equivalent of ground eight, but it's still going to require two months of arrears, uh, both at the date of the notice and the date of the hearing. And the notice period is going to be increased from two weeks to four weeks. And that may be a problem because, of course, the legislation has now reduced already the maximum deposit, which a landlord can take, down to either five or six weeks rent. So two months rent is obviously more than six weeks. So there is going to be um, a gap between the deposit cover and the mandatory arrears ground. There is going to be a three strikes and out rule. Uh, If the tenant hits two months arrears three times in three years, then that will also be a mandatory ground for possession. And finally, we don't have any detail on it. The the government says in the white paper that they'll make the grounds for possession clearer and simpler, and there'll be more mandatory grounds for breaches of covenant. But first of all, we don't have any detail about those new grounds. 
And secondly, the landlord will still have to prove them if the tenant denies them, which will still require going to court in the current marriage. So touching on the court process itself, is there going to be any reform to that? Because as things stand, the, the courts are overburdened with possession cases and possession cases are taking 12 to 18 months um, just to get a hearing. That is a, a question which the, I don't think the proposals really answer. There are a number of initiatives which are announced in, in the paper, but whether they will work remains to be seen. I mean, the first is there's going to be an ombudsman system uh, which will apply to all private landlords, which will afford a, a form of redress. But that's essentially where the tenant has complaints. So, I mean, it will potentially take small disrepair claims out of the court system, but it's not going to deal with serious issues where the landlord wants to evict. It is said that the court process is going to be improved and reformed. But to my mind, there's really very little detail. There is some reliance on the ombudsman scheme, but I can't see that really impacting on the number of possession claims. It is said that there's going to be an improvement because there'll be more digitization. But that process is in train at the moment. And the problem is there aren't enough judges and there aren't enough court hours to deal with everything. So you can digitize all you like, but unless you're going to digitize the judge into an avatar, that's not going to help with the backlog of possessions. One thing which would presumably fix the issues is a lot more money given to HM court service, but there's been no promise, as far as I can see, of lots of extra money for the court service. And the court service has lots of other drains on its purse. It's suggested that there may be a process for marking certain cases as urgent. So, for example, if the tenant is guilty of antisocial behaviour, there may be a sort of ticketing system which ought to push those cases to the front of the queue. Now, that might work for serious antisocial behaviour, although one would hope that the courts could identify those cases anyway. But if it does work, then it seems to me that all that does is it pushes other cases further down the queue. So unless rent arrears are considered to be worthy of ticketing, which one doubts, it may mean that it's actually even harder to get a date if you simply want to evict the tenant because they're three months in arrears of their rent. So those suggestions, in my view, really don't give any comfort that the court service is going to be able to produce a better, quicker system. And there's another suggestion in the paper which may actually make things worse, despite its good intentions, uh, which is uh, a mediation pilot. The direction of travel in other contexts is clearly towards mandatory mediation. There's a consultation out, uh, which is just closed, I think, to introduce mandatory mediation in all defended small claims. Uh, if you had mandatory mediation in possession claims, that is inevitably, in my view, going to delay rather than speed up the process of obtaining possession. So no judicial determination by artificial intelligence just yet then. What about deposit protection regulations? One of the strictest regimes on landlords in terms of what they need to comply with at the outset of a tenancy. Are these going to be amended? I don't think that they are. That, that's not my reading of, of the paper. And there is a proposal which has been discussed for a couple of years now about passporting. And this is, is not designed to deal with the strictness of the deposit protection schemes. It's designed to deal with a, a problem for tenants, which is that for any decent property, you're going to need to put down a deposit. If you're a tenant who's moving from one property to another, you need probably the deposit back on the first property in order to make it easy to move into the second property. On the other hand, the landlord doesn't know whether they have a claim on the deposit until 
the tenant has left the first property. So those two different considerations are butting heads in a way which no one has been able to sort out. If you passport a deposit, for example, from property one to property two, and then the landlord of property one finds that there's significant damage, what happens then? Do they take the deposit, which is now in landlord two's hands, and then does that leave landlord two with a tenancy but no deposit? So the white paper um, and the proposals don't appear to suggest that there's going to be any immediate introduction of passporting. Well, what they're suggesting is that the idea is kept under review, there'll be investigations of potential ways around it, and there is the expressed hope that there may be um, some sort of initiatives coming out of the private sector which will come up with a solution. But at the moment, it doesn't appear that there's going to be any significant change to the tenancy deposit regime. So how do they intend to police the new rules? Are there any other powers for any other bodies? Yes. Although it doesn't appear to be part of an enforcement regime, there is this proposal for a property portal. The essential aspect of the property portal is that it's a register of rented property and a register of who is the landlord of each rented property. And it seems to me that a registration system is halfway to licensing. It will be mandatory for all private rented property to be entered onto this portal. And what this portal is designed to do is, first of all, to inform tenants of their legal rights and to inform landlords of their legal obligations. But it's also to form a resource for local authorities and local authorities will be able to use the information on this portal potentially for seeking banning orders, for example. And that is a new power which they're going to have. Councils are going to have powers across the entire private rented sector to enforce against landlords. Uh, this is a subject on which the white paper does promise some extra funding, funding for local authorities to enforce. And enforcement officers will have a number of powers. We've talked about banning orders. We've talked about rent repayment orders. Earlier, we talked about uh, enforcing the decent home standard. So the essential tools are there if there is sufficient funding for local authorities to take the appropriate action. But experience in the HMO sector does suggest that local authorities will be active because rent repayment orders are now a significant proportion of the workload of the first tier tribunal in respect of unlicensed and substandard HMOs. So you would assume that the same will happen for substandard properties in the private rented sector. So with everything that is going on politically at the moment, where does this sit on the government's agenda as of 13th of October 2022? Blanket bans are to be banned, essentially. Uh, it won't be lawful to say no DSS tenants, no families, professionals only, and indeed it won't be lawful to say no pets under the new regime. Two days ago, I would have said, given everything that's going on politically, is this still high on the political agenda? Do you think that this is going to be pushed through? That's a very interesting question. We seem to have had a number of twists and turns on this. Now, the underlying point, I think, is that it was a manifesto commitment to introduce this. Three days ago, it was definitely government policy, and we have the June White Paper. Two days ago, it was suggested that it wasn't necessarily policy and it wasn't a priority. Yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions, we had the promise that the abolition of no-fault evictions would be carried through. The papers this morning are reporting that there will be a bill, but it won't be in the current parliamentary session. And I think that that's inevitable. It seems to me that 
it's much harder to draft the necessary legislation than it is to express um, the hopes uh, in the white paper. If you are going to change fundamentally the system for private rented tenancies, then you're effectively repealing the Housing Act 1988. And the white paper specifically says there will be an end to the difference between assured tenancies and assured shortholds. There will be a single system of tenancies in England. So that's a really substantial piece of legislation, which I expect could take easily a year to draft. And that might mean that you get the situation which has happened before, usually with leasehold reform, where there's a bill introduced in the very last session of a parliament, and it's then lost when there is an election. So finally, if you had three takeaway points for land-owning clients of ours, what, what would they be? I think three points. One, responsible landlords have nothing to fear from the decent home standard. I think, secondly, it is inevitably going to be more risky as an endeavour to let out properties on the private rental market because it is going to become more difficult and more costly and more time-consuming to remove bad tenants. So that will inevitably have an effect on yields. It will have an effect on the perceived profitability of private rent properties at a time when interest rates are going up, which is itself um, a point which is eating into the economics of, of renting out private property. On the other hand, third point, change is inevitably, I think, at least a couple of years off, but it is coming. Well, that just about brings us to the end of our time today. Philip, I'd like to thank you for joining us and for your insight on the white paper and the practical advice and key takeaways for our audience. Clearly, there's going to be a strong element of watch this space in respect of the evolution of the white paper. Given the wider political environment, this is very much an interesting paper for interesting times. Thank you for listening. My guests have been Thomas Nolan and Philip Rainey, KC. And I hope you have enjoyed today's Denton's Property Litigation Podcast. Mm -hmm.